0: welcome to day 24 of journey through scripture today we're going to be in genesis chapter 47 verse 13 through the end of chapter 48 and then psalm 14 and finally matthew uh, chapter 16 verse 21 through chapter 17 verse 13 okay let's begin here in genesis chapter 47 um so joseph has brought his family into Egypt, and they have been given uh, a a large plot of land in order to um, maintain their livelihood in the land of Goshen. And now today's passage, at least the first part of it, um, deals with kind of like the latter part of the famine and uh, what happened as a result of that and some of uh, the results of Joseph's administration. And so, basically, the famine is uh, in full swing. There's no food in all the land. It's very severe, and uh, both the uh, both Egypt and Canaan are deeply affected by this. Um, Joseph, um, at by this point, has been doing this for so long now that uh, essentially. Pretty much, every, I mean, the picture that's painted here is pretty much everyone in Egypt and in Canaan have um, have exhausted their financial resources to to straight up buy grain, and so other arrangements are made here. So the first off, uh, the first thing that happens is that um, they uh, the people come to him and um, asking for food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is gone. And um, he agrees to give them food in exchange uh, for livestock. And so he does that in exchange for horses, flocks, herds, and donkeys. And um, that food lasts for about a year. and when it's ended, um, they come back, also still broke. and um, and so they offer buy us and our land for food, um, and we with our land. Will be servants to Pharaoh, and what they ask for him in uh, from him rather in verse nineteen is uh, uh, food as well as notice seed, which does suggest that by this time the years of famine um, are visibly coming to an end. That there is water that seed would do any good by this time, right? Because famines are usually caused by a lack of water, um, but they need food in the meantime, so um they offer this as a last uh, a last uh, resort um, to give both themselves and their land to the crown and Joseph agrees to this um and uh and with the exception of of the Egyptian priests and it's not clear why um, he does that except for the fact that you know priests are not typically people who are at least to my knowledge in Egypt they're not um, sowing land and taking care of crops and taking care of livestock and stuff like that. Uh, these guys um, essentially work for the for the royal cults, the royal religious centers. And of, of course, the deal that Joseph um, works out with them uh, can definitely seem a little bit harsh, right? Like these people are starving and they've come to him in desperation for food, willing to give themselves and their land and uh and joseph um does agree to this to an extent um and no you know the language is we're going to be servants to sarah to pharaoh so you know that can definitely be interpreted as what the whole population is enslaved now but if you look what actually happens um he basically gives them the seed that they need the food and the seed that they need and then levies a five um or a, a 20% tax, right, so a fifth. Um, and uh, one one commentator on this, Eric Lowenthal, um, has a comment, what kind of serfdom is it that grants four-fifths of the pr- produce to the serf, right? So it's like Joseph accepts the deal um, for them to be, quote-unquote, servants, uh, but then when you look at how it actually plays out— um, it's basically, you know, it's it's hard to see how this is any form, uh, anything that we would really recognize as slavery. And in fact, the 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 slavery that may be in mind here it may be some sort of uh, debt slavery. Um, perhaps this would be, uh, you know, the opportunity for them to pay back what was given to them, perhaps with their lands. Uh, serving as a sort of collateral or something. Of course, we're speculating a little bit here, but I just want to note that the, um, uh, the outcome of this arrangement does not seem to be quite as dastardly as uh, the, you know, the initial um, setting forth of the terms, we might say. So that's the first section of what we've read in Genesis today. The second section concerns uh, Jacob, aka Israel, Um, and interestingly, fun little factoid, uh, in verse 27, if you look, it says, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied. And, uh, so this is actually the first time in scripture where, um, Israel is actually refers to all of the people of God, um. Uh, one might—the uh, the, the, the slight exceptions to this would be in 32, 32 where it says, Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh. That's after Jacob wrestling with uh, God. And then in chapter 34, after um, uh, Dinah had been uh, taken advantage of, uh, it says that uh, he had done an outrageous thing in Israel— by lying with Jacob's daughter, it says that of Shechem. Um, and But both of those are kind of like, you know, backward uh, reflections, we might call them, right? Like later commentary. Whereas in terms of like the mainline narrative, this is the first time that Israel, that the people are referred to as Israel. We're also given the total years of Jacob's life here, um, 147 which, of course, is interesting because Jacob doesn't actually die until the very end of chapter 49. Um, but uh, but what we see here now is an, another one of these uh, kind of deathbed scenes. And there's like, I suppose we could say there's like a part one, a part two, and a part three of these deathbed scenes for Jacob. Um, and we get part one and two in today's reading. Remember how um, you have Abraham's deathbed scene, you have um, Isaac's be- deathbed scene, where he gets taken advantage of by Jacob, uh, and then you have uh, Jacob's. And yeah, there's a little bit of, uh, this is kind of type scene-y, right, where where um, there are repetition of uh, common elements here. And um, and the fact that that Jacob um, has multiple deathbed scenes, I think, just clues us into the reality that when uh, per, someone was old back then, um, a person he might expect to die soon, but uh, you know you don't really know how long he's got. I mean, that's kind of how it is today, even uh, how much more so then. So um, when the time came. Uh, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called Joseph and said to him, and in this first deathbed scene, um, he talks about how um, he wants Joseph to swear to him that he will not bury him in Egypt, but will bury him in the promised land. Of course, very important. And uh, uh, and and um, it, note here, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly with me, just like Abraham did right? And we um, we looked at, uh, even yesterday, the, um, uh, the use of this uh, interesting word that keeps popping up, his thigh, his thigh. Um, and uh, so, he makes Joseph swear to do this, and in fact, he does do that. And then you have another scene in uh, chapter 48, where Joseph is told his father is ill, so he comes in with his two sons Ephraim and Manasseh, and uh, by this time Jacob needs to be told that they are there. Uh, it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you, and so he summoned his strength and sat up in his bed, and um, and then Jacob uh, begins this process of this, this um, you know, second kind of formal thing that he wants to say on his deathbed, and the scene that un- unfolds, Um, as I'm sure you know, having done the reading already, um, very much concerns offspring, right? It concerns um, uh, future generations. And so note that God here is once again called God Almighty, which we know in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. This is the name of God that was common to um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their family, and uh, especially used... And I I would argue that pretty much every time it's used in at least in Genesis, it has um, there there's always it always has something to do with offspring and God's blessing of future generations. So uh, Jacob here acknowledges a, a very abbreviated version of the Abrahamic covenant. Behold, God, um, you know El Shaddai told me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. This, of course, recalls uh, God's word to him at Bethel en route to uh, Haran or Paddan Aram to live with Laban for all those years. Um, Because notice here, he says, he appeared to me at Luz, Luz being the former name of Bethel, as we've already been told. And so what what does Jacob intend here? Well, Joseph's got these two boys there, and he says... um, to them uh that these two are mine, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. Jacob's saying this, as Reuben and Simeon are mine, and the children you father after them shall be yours, uh, they shall be called by the name of their brothers and in their inheritance. Um but uh but Jacob in some sense is kind of like <clears throat> I guess you could say adopting these two sons to himself. Um so what's going on here? Well essentially um, Jacob is bestowing on Joseph the honor of firstborn. Remember, it's the double portion, and so Jacob is given the, through his sons a di- direct inheritance. You know, a one um, a direct generational inheritance from Jacob, and you can see that clearly because he says, "As Reuben and Simeon are are, and we know the significance of Reuben and Simeon; those are the first two born sons of Jacob." And so Jacob asks um, Joseph to bring him, bring them to him, and uh, notice, again, another clue into this type scene. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Does that remind us of anyone? Yeah, it reminds us of Isaac and how years earlier Jacob had taken advantage of his dim sight. And we see Joseph kind of doing exactly the opposite here, right? Um, where in just a few verses he's going to perceive even that Jacob is making a mistake and try to correct it, thinking he he knows what his father wants, but then allowing his father to go forward with it. Um, and and in addition, an additional connection with that episode here is note that he kissed them and embraced them. Um, and in that's kind of like one might even think like the climax of that scene back in verse twenty seven. Where in verse twenty seven. Um, uh, Jacob has to come to his father and kiss him, so Jacob is kissing in both of these scenes as well. So we we might say that what we have here is the 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 breaking of this cycle that Jacob has uh, set forth of kind of pulling one over on your father, um, and jo- Joseph is breaking that here, and so, um, so he brings. He brings—Joseph brings them brings over, and he, he you could tell that the text wants you to focus, like, on where everyone's body parts are here, right? So, he's bringing—and essentially what he does, so Manasseh is the older son, and so he brings him, uh, which would make Manasseh on Joseph's left, to Jacob's right hand, and he brings Ephraim, who is the younger, um, who, who would be on Joseph's right side, to Jacob's left hand. I think I said that right, <laughs> because obviously the 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 right hand is like you know sit at my right hand. That's the that's the side of prominence. Um, and Jacob is he decide he crosses his hands so as to put his hand on the head of the younger. Um, again, the, the, now this is not something that God has commanded, right? Like we don't have like evidence that God has been like. You know, Ephraim will be the, um, the the more prominent of the two sons. Of course, it's a, that w- remember that we're past the point now in Genesis where the Abrahamic blessing is transferred to one son in exclusion of the others. Uh, but instead, we're we're dealing with like relative degrees of prominence here, um, and it doesn't seem as if like God has instructed him to do this. But it does seem that he's. Um, keeping in line with what he sees as the family precedent, and that is this overturning of primogeniture—that that, that um, there is um, God, God cares for the younger, the one whom uh, society would would treat as as second—and so he places his hands on them, and. Uh, kind of in a way reminiscent to Isaac, he pronounces a blessing, which is good, but it's distinct from the blessing of Abraham. Again, that's not what Jacob's concerned with here. He's concerned with uh, simply giving Joseph the double portion of the firstborn. And so um, with his right hand on Ephraim's head and his left hand on Manasseh's head, he blesses Joseph and says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Think of Jacob's history, right? The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth." And now, as to Ephraim's um, you know, prominence between him and his brother, um, it's noteworthy that the um, offspring of Ephraim um, are tend to become the rulers in the northern kingdom of Israel. So, spoiler alert, Israel will eventually break into two kingdoms, where it's Judah in the south, um, kind of with Simeon—Simeon uh, Simeon is completely enclosed in the territory of Judah— but then the other tribes um, are all in the north and part of a separate kingdom. And although the, uh, again, spoiler alert, the kings in the south in, reigning from Jerusalem will be from the tribe of Judah, the kings of the north um, are typically Ephraimite kings. I forgot to look up if every single one of them is, but at least the majority of it is. And in fact, like there are points in the Old Testament where... Um, uh, the northern kingdom is simply referred to as Ephraim. So that's kind of what's going on here. Um, now, I have also underscored that um, there is, uh, just as there was in chapter 27 when Jacob deceived Isaac, There, this is not uh, the typical Abrahamic covenant language, so this needs to be held distinct from that. Now, one thing that might throw us off, and I don't know why the um, the English Standard Version does this, um, but um in verse 19 it says of Ephraim that um uh he shall be greater and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And that can be very confusing because that sounds very Abrahamic. Now, just the presence of like one element in it doesn't mean that this is the Abrahamic blessing. Um of course the Abrahamic blessing, of course, is theirs already because they are offspring of Abraham, but um uh, that language, that translation, is very misleading um, because it's not the same Hebrew expression um, that was that has been used of Abraham becoming the father of a multitude of nations. So, multitude of nations in the in Abraham's life in Genesis seventeen five is hamon goyim, and remember that's part of the pun on which Abraham's new name is made, is, is made off of. Um, whereas here in Genesis 48, 19, the expression is mellow hagoim, uh, from the verb mala, which means to, f- to fill. And so it's, or actually malay, I think is the form it occurs in. Um, so the, the point is, is that it's, it, it's, this is actually, this is, even though it sounds that way in English, it's not the same thing as we saw with Abraham. Um, uh, I, if I were translating, I might say shall become a, a fullness of nations or something like that and kind of like leave it to the reader to figure out what in the world that means. <laughs> but I just want to point out that that language is distinct there. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's what he does. So thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh and the final blessing or uh, like bonus that he gives to Joseph here in verse 22 is is a mountain slope, quote unquote mountain slope that um, that he's giving to Joseph rather than to his brothers. Um, uh, it's not much, but it's what Jacob can offer at this point. Um, now, interestingly, mountain slope in Hebrew, guess what word that is? Shechem. <laughs> okay? So the same as that city, which kind of sounds like the the, 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 the city or town that was taken following the slaughter of, um, the inhabitants by, um, Simeon and Levi. Um, and Jacob's wording, of course, is interesting. I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow, uh, Amorites being used often as kind of short for all of the people of Canaan. Um, interestingly, <laughs> Jacob himself is an Amorite, uh, but that's, a uh, for another, that's another story. But at any rate, that's uh, it's likely that what he's giving here is Shechem, and uh, I think it's uh, noteworthy to point out here that um, uh, Joshua is eventually buried in in Shechem in Joshua twenty four thirty two, and Joshua is from guess what tribe, Ephraim. Okay, let's go now to Psalm fourteen. Here we have another Psalm of David, and it begins with uh, a phrase that is kind of uh, well known, I think, and that is, "The fool says in his heart, there is no God." Um, now, I think it's important to point out here that this probably is not talking about like straight up atheism. Uh, one searches in vain in at least this point in the ancient world. To find people who are legit atheists who just believe in no, you know, no gods whatsoever. Um, rather, the the uh, the the implication here would seem to be um, that you know God is a practical irrelevance in life. He doesn't do anything. You know, we, life just goes on as it is. God's not intervening. He's not in control. He he's not watching. He doesn't hold anyone accountable. Um, it's just this you know, so the fool like looks around him and doesn't perceive God for one reason or another and just concludes, eh, I'll just live life as if there is no God. And that's a foolish thing to do. Sounds very Proverbs-ish, doesn't it? Um, and such people who live life this way are corrupt, doing abominable deeds. Um, and then it, this, the psalm kind of steers in an interesting direction, There is none who does good. And of course, um, several phrases from this psalm are are actually picked up by Paul in the letter of Romans in chapter uh, one, where he's talking about the universal sinfulness of mankind. Um, And indeed, this really does seem to be teaching that here. So Yahweh the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Notice the children of man, that's a pretty broad thing, right Like he's not saying like just the other nations and stuff like children of man like if you're a child of of if you're part of mankind, he's looking down to see if there's any who seek God who understand and what's the verdict? they've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so uh, there is a sense then in which all people live as if there is no God saying in their heart, In a sense in which we're all fools in that way. This, I think, is one of the uh, the passages that really contribute to our understanding of sin, in particular the the, well, as I've already called it, uh, the universal sinfulness of mankind—what um, those in the Reformed tradition would call total depravity. Of course, this this doesn't give us uh, everything that total depravity uh, means, but uh, it, clearly that this is there. There are no exceptions. This is like the Old Testament Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, they have no knowledge. All the evil doers. Um, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon YHWH? Um, here we seem to be back in a subset of this larger group of sinners, which is all of humanity, and um, uh, you know, uh, singling them out—the um, people who are particularly against God's people, which at this point is Israel. Um, they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous, which is interesting for at least two reasons. Number one, that there are some who could be called righteous in light of what was just said in the psalm. The, these would be those whom God has redeemed out of lost humanity. And um, also that the fact that God is with the generation of the righteous brings about terror in those who say there is no God, in those who don't seek him, who have turned aside and do not do good. And that terror at the realization of the futility of how they have been living their lives may not be there right now, but the fact that God is with the generation of the righteous will eventually spell terror for the unrighteous and and calamity. And then, interestingly, in uh, in verse 6, it immediately turns, shockingly, to the second person pronoun, right? You, you would shame the plans of the poor. So it's almost like um, it suddenly turns its attention to a reader uh, who self-reflectively perhaps is realizing, hey, I'm one who maybe says in my heart there is no God, Um, uh, and maybe I'm among those who um, who can expect, quote-unquote, terror here. You, you would shame the plans of the poor. So notice the injustice here going on, but Yahweh is his refuge. So that's, it is not a safe place to be, um, to be against God's beloved, God's people and the poor. Um, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So this is a very forward-looking psalm, right? Like, that salvation is coming. Um, God is with the generation of the righteous. Um, the righteous slash the, the, the poor take refuge in the Lord now, and one day salvation will come out of Zion for Israel. Um and uh, and one day he will restore the fortunes of his people, and I'll just say that it is important as God's people to realize that um, the full blessing of God, full deliverance, right? Like this, this final hope that we have that God will make all things right, um, uh, that He will show justice to the wicked and mercy to the righteous who call upon His name, that there is uh, that 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 will only be fully realized. In the future. It is not yet. Um, We live in the now. And so we set our hopes on truths like those that are expressed here in Psalm 14. All right, let's go over now to Matthew chapter 16. We are starting in verse 21. And remember what's just happened. Um, Peter has made his great confession. Uh, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Um, Jesus has praised him for this. Um, he has promised that upon either him or his confession that he would build his church, and has given Peter the king the keys of the kingdom of heaven so that whatever is bound on earth shall be bound in, in heaven, and vice versa. And now, um, in light of that, Jesus now drops another bomb on them. And notice how, how it begins, that he is going to Jerusalem— up till now, in Matthew, Jesus has been, for the most part, in the north, like in Galilee. Uh, but Jerusalem is the center of uh, the Jewish religious elite, who have already, you know, shown themselves to be very much at odds with Jesus. So it's like this sense of foreboding as he's going to Jerusalem and 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 going nearer, nearer that something is going to happen, and this will kind of hang over the narrative. Um, of Matthew uh, like a dark cloud um, uh, for pretty much the rest of the book until the, re- until the resurrection. Um, and he tells them that when he gets there, he will suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And now, you know, so f- clearly foretelling his resurrection, and Jesus will do this three times in Matthew. Um, uh, and we'll get more specific than this, by the way, but, you know, you can definitely see how this was very confusing to the disciples because this was the last thing on their agenda. This is the last thing that they thought would happen to Jesus, um, including the resurrection, right? Because for them, the resurrection was something that would happen at the end of the age. Like, this is the final hope of the people of God. So, like, what is, what is Jesus talking about? And it's obviously... Um wouldn't be the first time that Jesus is telling them something confusing, something that they don't understand, and so Peter kind of just latches on to this suffering part and says, far be it from you, Lord, and it's significant that Peter says this, because Peter is the one who was just praised uh, for having this amazing um, you know, confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and now, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So just like straight up opposing Jesus. And Jesus has a extremely harsh rebuke for him, which I think really highlights how much, um, he wants his disciples to center their thoughts on this, center their thoughts on the impending cross that is coming. Cause he says, get behind me, Satan. Oh man, if Jesus is calling you Satan. You know, that's uh you've done messed up. Um, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Um, like, you you have not yet truly understood the kingdom of God if you don't understand that that suffering, my suffering, and what he's about to say, your own as well, is intrinsic to that. Um, that, that here and now, as the kingdom of heaven is in conflict with the kingdom of the world, um, the world will not take kindly to the citizens of heaven. And so and in fact, the reason why Jesus or maybe one of the reasons why Jesus calls um, Peter Satan here may be because that very attitude is the kind of thing that Satan was tempting Jesus early on with, right? Like if you bow to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Essentially, hey, let's just circumvent this whole cross and suffering things. you can you can have your dominion now. So Peter, who just confessed this, Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the Living God, is now making clear that he has much to learn, uh, as we would if we were in his shoes as well, right? Like this is this is new for him, and he needs to learn uh, from Jesus uh, what the kingdom of God is, and that's what he's learning. Uh, interestingly, Jesus doesn't go on to elaborate on his own suffering, uh, but as I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, a few moments ago, uh, he, he focuses on ours, on the disciples, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is definitely a place to stop and pause for your own personal reflection, right? That like, what does my walk of discipleship look like? And the truth is, for some of us, or maybe for all of us, depending on the season of life, it's like, what cross am I really carrying? What am I really giving up for Jesus to follow him. And um and and how does that affect my ability to call others to follow him? Like I I've given nothing for him, right? Like no, like there's always a there's always something in our life that because we follow Jesus induces suffering, makes things difficult. Um and and in fact, often it's it's more extreme than just, you know, the giving up of Wednesday nights for some kind of commitment at church or something, right? Like for a lot of Christians throughout history, including the apostles, right? This would, there is like serious, like physical suffering and even death that is included in following Jesus. Um, And so Jesus just gives them this, you know, um, not pulling any punches um, discourse here. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I just ask you who are listening, have you lost your life for Jesus's sake? Um, and indeed, it's, it's foolish to do otherwise. For those who understand, it's foolish to do otherwise. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And then he says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Um, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Now, this is a, a this is challenging, and we're, we will revisit this kind of language when we get to Matthew 24, this idea that like, well... Some standing here; those are the those are the disciples. What's going on with that? And um, I think that um, this is probably an appropriate time to mention. Just being kind of conscious of how long, I, how far into this podcast I already am, uh, so I'll try to be quick here. Um, um, and again, we will see this more when we get to chapter twenty-four for sure. Um, but this notion of the Son of Man coming in in His kingdom. So, Jesus' Son of Man language is taken from Daniel chapter 7, where um, the Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne, and one like a Son of Man comes on riding on clouds, and there's a lot of significance to this, and just stay tuned, and we will unpack more of this. And what happens is that the Son of Man coming, riding on the clouds, then receives an everlasting dominion from the ancient of days, okay? And so, Son of Man coming, and especially coming on the clouds of heaven, is actually language for Jesus's kingdom being established in this world. And if we ask, when does that happen? Well, it's sort of happening now in the narrative, but it really happens when Jesus is raised from the dead. Right. And note how Matthew ends all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Right. The Son of Man is coming in on the clouds now. Like that, that's what that imagery means. I know it's easy for us to think like that's like end of the world stuff per se. And there's a sense in which it kind of is that. But before that happens, it's also appropriate to speak of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. As he receives his kingdom, as the gospel goes out, as as the 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 dark powers of this world are put to shame, as uh, people are being saved and and coming to know him, um, and so I think that that's probably what is he's referring to here when he says some of you will not taste death until you see this, but of course this is a cryptic statement that they don't understand. Okay, now another possibility there is that the some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom may refer to Peter, James, and John. Uh, I'm not going to come down hard one way or another. It may be one of those things where it's not either or but both, because note that six days later, Jesus takes them um, to a high mountain by themselves and is transfigured before them. And I love how Matthew just kind of like casually says that, like, oh, like, like it's just part of the normal um, narrative. And what that means, he explains, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Uh, the word for transfigured here is the word that we get metamorphosis from and at the risk of committing a word fallacy here, um, you get the idea like he he's changed, his appearance has changed. Um, uh, the white clothes is used in Scripture to denote people who are citizens of heaven, whose, whose true home is heaven. Um, angels, the saints, are described in that way. Um, and um, there also appears Moses and Elijah there, right? The two, like kind of like key figures in redemptive history. Moses for the giving of the law, Elijah, uh, kind of symbolizing the 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 whole movement of the prophets, right? So Jesus is there talking with the law and the prophets, we might say, and. Um, and in a sense, this, as I said, this might be some of those standing there, seeing the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Right, they're getting a glimpse of the, His glory, of who He truly is. And uh, Peter gets the idea to um, to make tents for them to stay there. This is awesome. Let's we're going to be here a while. And suddenly, a bright cloud overshadows them, and a voice once again comes. And thinks think back to His baptism, right this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I think this is very, you know, it's very appropriate to note where this takes place in the narrative too, right? They're on their way to Jerusalem now. Jesus has introduced the concept that he will go and suffer and die, and there's going to be a lot of reasons for the disciples to think, you know, maybe this Jesus guy wasn't all that he was cracked up to be. No, but now, like, to kind of like steal their resolve for the days that are ahead, God speaks to them from heaven and says, this is my son, my beloved son, listen to him. And, um, and after that happens, notice the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah are gone. Not meaning that the law and the prophet is abolished, right? I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew five seventeen. um, but it's just Jesus, that's the one whom, whom they're to follow, the, the new wineskins are, are here, uh, listen to him. And so he tells them, rise and have no fear, and they're, they're coming down the mountain, and he—again, we have another one of these messianic secret sayings, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead, and, and they ask him, right, they'd just seen Elijah, uh, why do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And then he answers elijah does come and he will restore all things and then jesus goes on and makes it clear that the elijah um the forerunner of the messiah has already come that he's speaking of john the baptist right they didn't recognize him they did to him whatever they pleased so also the son of man will suffer at their hands and again they they understand that he's speaking about john So notice the way in which the picture of the kingdom of God and of Jesus's mission has been like really revised during this passage. Um, How now it, yes, it includes this, it includes suffering, it includes crosses, right? But it also includes great glory. And those who see that are ones who are truly Jesus's disciples. Okay, well, thanks for being with me today. I very much look forward to tomorrow with you. And um, until then, keep reading Scripture. You're doing great. Take care. And bye-bye.